I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church because we're taught the truth and we love people. I love my church because everyone is designed to serve, even in junior high ministry. I love my church because this is my home. I love my church because I've learned about God's grace towards me and how to extend it to others. I love my church because we are better together. I love my church because we care enough about people to tell them the truth, whether or not it's popular. I love my church because marriage mentoring saved our marriage. I love my church because my whole family is here. I love my church. <laughs> I love my church because I'm able to go to summer and winter camp. I love my church because it offers an opportunity for my children and myself to grow our relationship with God deeper. I love my church because of the teachers that teach me. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church because of the fun activities. I love my church because generous people transform the world. I love my church because it feels like my family. I love my church. I love my church. We love our church. <laughs> I am so glad to see you this morning, and we are going to finish up the series we have been doing um, for the last few weeks called I Love My Church. And we have had the opportunity to spend the last few weeks talking about unique ways that the church offers something to us that nothing else in our culture and our society can offer to us. Um, you know, the church was God's plan. Over 2,000 years ago, people began to ask the question, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter looked at Jesus and said, you are the Messiah. You are the very son of God. And Jesus said, upon this truth, I am going to build the church. And you know what? He has. He has and he will continue to do so. And Jesus said that there is no power of hell that could destroy the church. And it has not and it will not. And the very death of Jesus would not destroy the church. And our deaths will not destroy the church. That continues to thrive in the name of Jesus because it is the true son of the living God that leads and guides us every step of the way of the local church. And so being part of the local church outside of your family is the best investment that you can ever make. The church is worth doing. Your local church is worth investing in. And I am so glad that you are here because God loves the church. God uses the church in the world in ways that nothing else can be done. So I am glad that you are here, and we want to give a special shout out this morning to um, our junior high and high school groups who have been joining us for this series. We have been so happy to have you guys here. It has been such a blessing, and you know what? We have had so much fun having you guys here. We hope that you guys will come back next week, join us at 1111 or one of the other services. We absolutely love having you guys here, so thank you for being here, and uh, we hope that you guys have had a good time as well. All right, well, here we go, finishing up week six. I love my church um, because it helps to shape my conscience. This is what we're going to talk about today, how the church, the local church, is able to help shape our conscience in a unique way. Now, I love the church because it helps us to make better decisions with fewer regrets in our lives, right? Who wants to make better decisions in your life and live with fewer regrets, right? I mean, that's something we all want to do. We all want to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. And we make decisions based 
on our conscience. Our conscience is kind of there to help guide us of which way we should go and what we should do. And people have all kinds of different theories and beliefs and understandings about how our conscience works. Let's just look at a few this morning. Okay, Tim McGraw, country music singer and star. I'm a private guy, and you don't want to be out there preaching to people, but faith leads you in the decisions you make. You don't always pick the right path, but it's there in your conscience. Okay, how about Ben Franklin? I'm one of our founding fathers. A good conscience is a continual Christmas. Is it not? Right? A good conscience is a good thing. Okay, here's Stephen Covey. He wrote um, the the famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Every human has four endowments, self-awareness, conscience, independent will, and creative imagination. These give us the ultimate human freedom, the power to choose, to respond, and to change. So God created each of us with this amazing gift called free will. We get to choose. We get to make decisions about how we are going to live our life all day long, all day long. So our conscience is kind of what you use to make decisions that tell you if things are good or if things are bad. Which way are you going to go with the decisions that you make? And we make decisions every day. We make lots of them. Some are really small and we don't think about, and some of them are really big and have really big, um, uh, they can be complex, they can be confusing, and they have a big impact on our lives. Um, Do you ever feel like some days you have a little demon on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder, and you're like, who am I going to listen to? Am I deaf in one ear today? Who am I going to listen to? How about relationship decisions? Have you ever made a bad relationship decision? Maybe you thought you were in love, or you thought you were in lust, or you were in something, and everyone tried to warn you. Maybe your mom tried to warn you, um, your friend tried to warn you, your therapist tried to warn you, but um, you didn't listen because you thought he was Mr. Right. Or maybe you thought she was Mrs. Wright, but maybe she wasn't really Mrs. Wright, but she was fun to look at and she made your friends jealous, so you just kind of went with it. Or how about a purchasing decision? Have you ever made a bad purchasing decision? We've all done that. We've all spent money at one time or another um, in an instant of uh, we wanted it, we thought it was worth it, we thought we needed it, we thought we deserved it, so we spent that money. But then there's a lot of times in our life when we have unanticipated decisions that we have to make. Decisions that we had no idea, we couldn't even plan for them because they just happened to us all of the sudden. Um, Now, my family has had a decision like this that we've had to uh, face in this last month. I have four kids at home. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And now my two-year-old this summer, she started complaining that her eye hurt. Now, um, you know, it was sunscreen season and beach and pools, and I just thought that she kept getting things in her eye, but she was persistent. And so we took her to the doctor for her physical, and the doctor couldn't find anything. She's a squirmy two-year-old, so it's hard to, you know, get tests done on her. But he said, hey, let's send her to a specialist just to make sure. So we waited six weeks to get into the specialist. We finally got into the specialist. And as soon as my little two-year-old Eden um, was sitting in that chair, and they started looking in her eye, they started drilling me about eye disease history in our family. And I said, no, we don't have any eye disease history in my family. And over and over again, they started questioning me. And I just started getting that feeling like, oh my goodness, something is wrong. And as they began to do a series of tests, it became very clear that my daughter could not see anything except light out of one of her eyes. And um, so the doctor came in and he looked and he said, she's got cataracts. 
like, what? How is that possible? She's a two-year-old. How do two-year-olds have cataracts? My dad, who's 79, just had cataract surgery. And he said, no, it's really rare, but sometimes it happens. And she might have had them from birth. It's hard to know. So they decided to send us to a team of specialists at UCLA. Um, So thankfully, cataract surgery is pretty easy to do. There's wonderful surgeons that do them all the time. The problem is, in a pediatric case, like a two-year-old, is that your brain is still connecting to all the different parts of your body as you're developing, and your eye continues to develop till you're about seven, eight years old. And so for her, since we don't know how long she hasn't been able to see, um, her brain has shut down the connection to the optical nerve and um, just doesn't think it's working. So there's just nothing there even connecting to the brain. So they began this um, just really intense push. We've got to do surgery on her quickly. We need to get her into surgery. And it began this insurance war of trying to get her cleared for surgery. Um, And all of a sudden, we found ourselves in the middle of this place. Three weeks ago, this was not even on our radar. And all of a sudden, we were in the middle of this difficult place of having to make some really big decisions that were going to impact the future of my daughter and her story and the future of our family and what our story was. So um, they wanted to get surgery scheduled as soon as possible. And so this last Thursday, my little two-year-old went in for surgery. Um, the dis- doctors said it went well, but um, they, it was even more complicated than they thought. They discovered she had three different types of cataracts in her eyes. Um, she had one in the nuclear center of her eye, one behind the lens, and then multiple cataracts scattered throughout her eye. And so um, they took all of them out, and surgery went well, but she still has no vision in that eye. And so we have a long road ahead of us likely to try and see if we can get the brain connecting back to that optical nerve and, and, um, and see what this story is that God is writing for her life. Have you ever had an unexpected decision that you've had to make? One that's impacted uh, maybe your health, but maybe your finances, maybe your family, maybe a friendship? Sometimes these decisions just put themselves right in our lap, and we are asking, how in the world do I make this decision? How do I decide? Sometimes we end up regretting decisions that we've made. Um, Have you ever had a decision that you've made that you regret, that you think, I'm not sure I'm going to tell my kids that story? I'm not going to tell my grandkids that story. If that story comes up, we're just going to reframe it a bit, leave that part out, because I don't want to share that part that I regret so deeply. Have you ever thought how your life would be different if the people in your life had made decisions differently? What if your parents had not split up? What if your parents had split up? What would your life look like You see, we never know what hangs in the balance with the decisions that we make because our decisions not only affect us, but they affect all the people around us. See, private decisions always have public ramifications. We might think that we're just making them in private, but eventually somewhere in our lives, it will have a public ramification on either our relationships, our family, our friends, our work, Somewhere down the road, those decisions always play out into the story of our life. And the crazy thing is, we're really good at selling ourselves on making bad decisions. I mean, we are professional salespeople when it comes to convincing ourselves what it is we should do because we want to do it in that moment. 
I mean, if only we would stop and ask ourselves, why am I doing this? But sometimes we don't. We just move ahead with what we want to do in that moment. You see, the story of our lives, though, it is written one decision at a time. Every decision layers upon the next to write the story of our life. And so I wonder if today together we thought about this one question that we would ask ourselves before we make decisions. And that question is, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want your life to tell? Now, when you came in today, you were um, given a, a pencil, or maybe you can see one of them in the book racks in front of you if you didn't, weren't given one. And I want you to hold on to that pencil and just think about the story that you're writing. As we talk about today, how we make decisions and what those decisions look like, um, because every decision you make is becoming part of the story of your life. Every season becomes a chapter in your life, and every decision that you make has an outcome. So you think about maybe some of the, the, the aspects of your life, some of the decisions you made. Maybe, maybe you went out with a guy for a year or two years, and he was kind of a jerk. And you spent one to two of your years of your life staying in that relationship. Um, and now that's part of your story. Or how about this one? Maybe you were at work, and your boss asked you to lie. And you didn't know what to do, but it was your boss asking you to do that. And so you lied and your boss called you on it, and you got fired. And now that becomes a part of your story. See, every decision that we make has an outcome. It weaves together as the story of your life. You know, perhaps you've found yourself in a really hard position. Like some of my dear friends, they've, in this economy, they've lost their jobs, they've been downsized or laid off, and it is a really excruciating time in their life to, to figure out what to do when you don't have work and you're looking for that job. And when you're in the middle of it, it is so traumatic, but it is hard to even think about two years down the road what it will be like when you're reflecting back on that. So, you know, you have some choices to make. Um, I lost my job, so I got embarrassed, so I started drinking too much, and then I started spending too much money, and I got in debt, and then I lost the respect of my wife or my spouse. You don't want that to be your story. You don't want to be, that's how you chose to interact in that decision. Or how about this one? Um, Maybe things aren't so good at home. Maybe um, your relationship with your husband isn't so great. But there's a guy at work, and he's pretty nice, and actually he's way nicer than the man you live with. And he has made it very clear to you that if you are willing, then he is wanting to take things to the next level, and you have a decision to make. Do you want that to be part of your story? Is that really the decision that you want to make? Now, I may not know you well, and in fact, I may have never even met you at all. But here's one thing that I bet is true of all of us today sitting in this room. I bet all of us want to have a story that we're proud to tell. I bet all of us want to have a story that we feel like we could tell our kids, that we could tell our grandkids, that maybe if you're talking to someone that you want to maybe spend the rest of your life with, you could tell them your whole story and not feel any regret. 
Are you able to tell your entire story? Because from this moment on, you can move forward in that direction. You can move forward in that path where you make decisions in a way that are honoring to God and helps you be proud to tell your story. That as you write your story one decision at a time, that they are decisions that you want to actually part of your story. You know, one reason it's so hard is because it's so easy to get distracted and caught up in the emotions of the moment, and we lose sight of the broader context of the story of our lives. You know, when you're up against a deadline, you've got to make a decision, and so you've got to decide right now, and sometimes people put pressure on you. You know, if you don't marry me right now, then I'm out of here. If you don't make that sales quota, then you're fired. Nobody wants to get fired. I mean, we all want to make sure that we can maintain those relationships and those responsibilities in our lives. So the story of tomorrow is the furthest thing from our minds. You see, we tend to think about decisions as choices, right? Have you ever done that? What's the best choice I can make in this situation? We don't think about it in terms of our story, that this decision is going to impact the story of our lives. And that's what makes this question so important for us to ask because it draws us out of the immediate and it places the decision in the broader context of our lives. Now, we are not the first generation to wrestle with this. There's a story in the Old Testament about a young boy who, um, he's a Jewish boy, and he has to make a lot of decisions. And it's an amazing story, and it's an amazing example to look at as how decision upon decision creates the story of your life. So it's 1850 BC, 1800 years before Christ is born, and there's a teenager named Joseph who is born, and um, he is one of 11, soon to be 12 sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob um, was one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and um, he had 12 sons. And at the time Joseph was a teenager, his brothers um, did not like him. His brothers were very jealous of him because Joseph's mom was a different mom than their mom. And Joseph's um, mom was more loved by his dad, and so he was the favored son. Now, his brothers were so jealous. They did not like Joseph. And in fact, they began to plot and how they could get rid of Joseph. And so one day when Joseph was walking down the road, they decided they were going to kill him. You thought you had it rough with your siblings, right? So Joseph's siblings decide they're going to kill him. But at the last moment, they kind of panic and they decide not to do it. So they throw him in a pit. They throw him in an old well. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do now, okay? What are we going to do? And some slave traders come walking down the road, and they think, aha, we could profit off of this. And so they sell Joseph to the slave traders, and Joseph ends up getting taken to Egypt. Now, the brothers, they go back and tell Jacob, their father and their parents, that Joseph was eaten by wild animals and that he is dead, Now, of course, this is heartbreaking to Jacob and um, Joseph's parents, and they are in deep mourning. Now, I don't want you to miss what happens here at this point in the story, because 10 men made a decision to tell a lie. They decided to keep a secret that they would keep every time they saw their dad, every time they saw their parents, they would be living this lie. 
liar, liar, right? I mean, we all know the saying, liar, liar, right? Um, Liars, um, uh, sometimes we think these lies are so innocent, but in fact, they really can haunt us because these 10 men became liars for life. This was a lie that was going to set them up for life. How much happier would life be if a liar's pants really did catch on fire? Have you ever wondered that? I sure have. Should be a whole different uh, story here. So these guys have as part of their story that they lied because um, they were jealous of their brother. They were jealous. And so they decided to write that part in their story. Okay, well, Joseph, he ends up on the auction block in Egypt, and there's a man named Potiphar who's captain of um, the, the guard, captain of the palace guard. He's a, a man of some authority and position, and he ends up buying Joseph. Potiphar buys Joseph. Or Potiphar buys Joseph. Um, and so Joseph here has a, a choice, a decision that he has to make. Um, am I going to have a bad attitude? Am I going to do as little as possible here? How am I going to handle this situation? Um, or am I going to give it all I've got and try and make the best of a bad situation? And that is what he does. And pretty soon, Potiphar begins to notice that Joseph has, is working hard and he's a man of integrity. And so he gives Joseph more and more responsibility. So here we pick up the story in Genesis 39, 6, and it says this. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. And so Joseph's decision to work hard paid off, and he began to get promoted among the slaves into a significant leadership position with authority and opportunity as the head of the palace guard. Okay, so if this is a movie soundtrack, this is where the music begins to change because Joseph is now going to be facing almost an impossible situation. It's almost a no-win situation either way that he goes. Genesis 39.6 goes on to tell us this. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Where do you think this is going? Well, um, it says this, Genesis 39, 7, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, Joseph is a million miles from home. He is probably a teenager of about 18, 19 years old. Um, For all practical purposes, he probably feels like God has completely abandoned him. He's got no family there to hold him accountable. He's in a foreign country. And his boss's wife has asked him to go to bed with him. So um, he is a slave. And he has been taken notice of as a slave. And he has a big decision to make. So what do you think he's going to do? What would you do if you were in that situation? Well, here's what scripture tells us he decided. In Genesis 39, 8, it says, he refused. Now, Joseph is going to begin to do something very interesting here. He begins to rehearse his story out loud. Scripture tells us he says this, With me in charge, he told her, Potiphar's wife, My master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. So Joseph does not let this powerful temptation or even these terrible circumstances overshadow the story of his life. 
Joseph does something that might be helpful for all of us to think about doing when we have a very difficult, maybe even an impossible situation to make. He talks out loud about what the ramifications of that decision is going to be. Now, in Joseph's case, that's right there in front of Potiphar's wife. He says something like, well, Mrs. Potiphar, I'm flattered, but you have to understand, I came to this land as a slave. I came here with no rights and no future. And your husband, yes, the one to whom you are married, your husband is the one who purchased me. And he treated me with respect. And in fact, he gave me the opportunity to serve me and your family. He has entrusted me and I have worked hard. I've done everything you've required with me. And with God's help, he's preserved my life. So scripture goes on to say that's Genesis 39.9. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And so I can almost envision Joseph saying, Mrs. Potiphar, that is your story. You're his wife. Do you really want to be an affair with a Jewish slave as part of your resume? Do you want that on your story? And then Joseph asks this amazing question in scripture. Genesis 39.9. How then could I do such a wicked thing? and sin against God. So, and again, I envision if this was the the movie soundtrack, the music would speed up and, and quicken and get louder here because Genesis, the writer of Genesis lets us know that things continue to intensify for Joseph. Genesis 39, 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. So Joseph is getting repeated offers, but he knows that private decisions will always have what? Public ramifications. So Joseph's decision, I imagine, is likely difficult for Potiphar's wife, humbling, probably humiliating. Um, Perhaps she had slept with numerous slaves in her husband's guard. Perhaps she had never been refused before. And so she got angry. And she decided to make up a lie about Joseph, and she accused him of raping her. Now, Potiphar is in a tough situation here. Um, He really has no choice but to respond to this accusation that his wife made. He has to punish Joseph. Now, this is just a hunch here. This is just a theory. But because Potiphar doesn't immediately call for Joseph's execution, I just wonder if maybe Potiphar had just a little bit of a sense of what was going on with his wife. We don't know. But he does need to take action, and so he throws Joseph into prison. Joseph is put into a political prison where Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt, would keep political prisoners. Now, this is what scripture goes on to tell us about Joseph in Genesis 39, 20 through 23. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison. He was remade responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Really? The Lord was with Joseph? 
how do you figure? Because if the Lord was with Joseph, would all of this really have even happened? Would Joseph had been um, taken to be killed by his brothers and then sold into slavery and had to go to a foreign country without his family as a teenager where he knew no one? Would he have been enslaved? Would he have been accused as an innocent man of a crime he did not commit and then thrown into jail? Really? The Lord was with Joseph? How do you figure? Well, Joseph's story is not over. And your story is not over either. And maybe if the Lord could be with Joseph through all that he was going through, just maybe the Lord is with you and the decision that you are facing today. Now, I can tell you, my sweet Eden, who is two years old, uh, surely does not deserve to be blind in one eye. Um, But we have a mighty God that is with us, and God is not finished with Eden's story yet. And we don't know how this story will end. And even if she never recovers her sight in that one eye, we know very, very clearly that God is still present, that God is writing the story of her life. He is writing the story of our family's life. And that even if she never regained sight, we can still see God very, very clearly. So Joseph, he spent two years in prison. After two years in prison, two men are put in jail with him, and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And so he interprets a dream for each of these men. The first one, he interprets the dream, and um, it was he predicted, and it came true, that he would be restored his job as a cupbearer to Pharaoh. The second man, he correctly predicted that he would be executed, and he was. Now, when this man was let go from prison, he said, remember me to Pharaoh. But the cupbearer went back to work and forgot about Joseph and did not remember him. And two more years passed, and he was still in jail. And I can only imagine that Joseph had really resigned himself to thinking, this is as good as it's going to get. I've got favor in the prison warden's eyes. I have some responsibility here in prison, and this must be my life. This is what God has for me. But then everything changed. Everything changed because Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a dream. And it was a dream that he thought was very important for the entire nation of Egypt, but he didn't understand it. And he couldn't find anyone to interpret the dream for him. All his magicians could not interpret the dream. And then the cupbearer remembered Joseph. He remembered Joseph in prison, and he remembered, I know someone who is good at dream interpretation. And so Joseph was brought to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh saw in Joseph um, something that someone, something that all these other people had as well, that um, Potiphar had found in Joseph and prison warden could found. They found that he was a man that was trustworthy. And Pharaoh made Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. Now, his main job began to store up food um, for Egypt for the next seven years to prepare for the coming famine. This was the dream that Pharaoh had had that Joseph had interpreted. And so once again, Joseph poured everything he had into his job um, that he found himself in that moment. And in seven years, a devastating famine hit the land. 
and there was people that were starving all around the area of Egypt. But Egypt had wisely stored up enough food and provisions that they had enough for both animal and humans. And so people in the surrounding area began coming to Egypt, begging, asking for food and for provisions. And some of those people that came into Egypt were Joseph's brothers. They were starving, and they came to Egypt looking for food. And perhaps one of the most dramatic moments in the Old Testament scriptures, Joseph comes face to face with the ten brothers who sold him into slavery. And this is what scripture says. Genesis 45, 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. His brothers must have been terrified that he would get treated, that they would get treated as they had treated Joseph. They probably thought, there's no way that Joseph is going to find favor with us. But Joseph was not anything like his brothers. Joseph had decided to live a life worth telling. Joseph was not going to harbor that regret of a bad decision. And so in Genesis 45, 4 and 5, it says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And so Joseph, he rescues his brothers and he's reunited with his father and they all move to Egypt with their families and they settle as guests of the prime minister, their brother, Joseph. So let's contrast the story here of Joseph and his brothers. His brothers decided to make a decision and tell a lie that became a secret that they had to hide. It made them liars for life. Now Joseph, on the other hand, he had a story that he was proud to tell because of the decisions that he made. And thousands of years later, we are still telling that story. God still wants that story to be told because of the decisions that were made. Because the story of your life is written one decision at a time. So what story do you want to tell? Don't ever make a decision that's going to make you a liar for life. You want to be able to have a story that you're proud to tell, that you can tell your kids and your grandkids and maybe even someone that you want to spend the rest of your life with. I'm going to invite Jay to come on up, and we're just going to close with a little bit of worship. And um, I, I put together a little card here, and they're just in the back on the tables. And if this would be helpful to you, you're welcome to grab one or a couple of these on the way out. And it just says, what story do you want to tell? And I want to invite you, encourage you, maybe take this home, put it somewhere that reminds you when you're making a decision, not to just ask that, that, make that decision in the context of what is the best choice in the moment, But what is the best choice that is going to help you write a story that you are proud to tell, that you can see God's hand working in? And on the other side is Proverbs 3, 6. It says, and this is the Good News translation, remember the Lord in everything you do, and he will show you the right way. 
Now, I love the church. I love the local church. I've dedicated my life to the local church. And I believe the local church has so much going for us. The church is something that helps shape our conscience every day to help us make decisions that are glorifying to our God and helps us to live lives better, to live our lives in a way so that we have less regret. I'm so thankful for the local church. I'm so thankful that you make the decision to invest and be part of the local church. God, I just want to thank you that you have uniquely positioned the church to help guide our conscience in these areas of right and wrong. I thank you that in a world where right and wrong are increasingly difficult to navigate, I thank you that you established the church as one of the places that can help teach us how to make decisions that honor you and give us a better life. And so, Jesus, we just ask that you would give us wisdom as we make decisions today and as we make decisions every day. Amen.